Again, we're in Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll go to God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all the grace. Love that song, Jesus, Jesus. And we need Him now. So we come here, as Byron said, to be transformed. We need to change. But I pray that we would humbly submit to your Word today by your Spirit. Pull us out, prick us, give us one thing from your word that we can take with us throughout the week. And may above all, Christ be exalted as we study the word together this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As Americans, we think a lot about success. What is success? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. If you had to define success in one sentence, what would that be? I recently read an article in Business Insider because I'm such a big businessman. But I read this article where they were asking these famous people to define success or they were uh, codifying their whole philosophy into one sentence. So they would have John Wooden who said his view of success was the self-satisfaction you get from knowing that you've done your best to reach your goals. That was the way he viewed it. Winston Churchill said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. Uh, Maya Angelou, the African-American author, said success is about liking yourself, right? And liking what you do. Billionaire Richard Branson said success is immersing yourself in your work. Here as we're studying through Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives us a different view of success. His catchphrase for it, we'll see in verse 27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So for Paul, success is letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us a couple of ways that can happen. But interestingly enough, in Christian living, it's radically different from other views of success because as Christians, what happens is Christ actually is the one who wins the success for us. And that's good news, right? Because if my only view is John Wooden's view of success, which is uh, doing your best every day and performing to your highest. That's success. If I'm honest with myself, I don't reach that a lot, right? Because I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm frail, I'm sick. I would never, ever achieve much success if I were bound to that definition. But in the Christian worldview, We have Christ who can come into our mess and actually achieve success. And that's going to be kind of our catch word here this morning as we go through the text. My mess can be Christ's success. My mess can be Christ's success. Again, read in verse 27 with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of of Christ. Remember what Paul's mess was? He's alluded to it earlier in the book already back in um, verse 12. Paul been thrown in jail and so the worry of all of his friends and family and everybody knew him was, oh man, is, is he going to be personally, um, is he going to be personally perhaps killed, kept in there for life? What's going to happen? And what about the mission of Christ? Is that going to be a colossal fail? What's going to happen here with the apostle Paul? And if he were live tweeting through this, that's what we have in verse 12. 
kind of his update. He's updating his LinkedIn profile for us here to let people know everything's okay. Look what he says in verse 12 if we skip back. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So that's his update. My suffering in prison, my mess, has actually turned out for Christ's success, right? The brothers are now encouraged. The gospel is flying, taking off like eagle's wings. So much so that in verse 18, he can say, in prison, on death row, maybe going to die. He says, I I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice because this situation, I thought was going to be a big bomb. Christ has redeemed. He has turned it. My mess is Christ's success. Going way beyond positive thinking here, he knows that his life is worth something and he celebrates that his suffering, his jail time are not a waste. They're not throwaways. His problems aren't throwaways. God has been working to redirect all the chaos towards God's own redemptive goals, to recreate the world, to redeem all humanity. Just we don't see it when we're in our own mess, but as Paul pulls away from it, he can say, hey, my mess is actually working for Christ's success. Reading a book right now, biographical, uh, biographical book by Joe Patalski, should be required reading for all TCC church members. The name of the book is The Dallas Cowboys. Uh, but the history of this sports organization, and it tells the story of one famous coach who was a genius tactically in football uh, who started the team. His name was Tom Landry. and was famous for, on defense, he would get his defensive players, he would train them to act against their instinct. So if you're uh, a linebacker and you've got a receiver coming out and the receiver comes and crosses your face, the instinct of a good football player is to guard that guy, right? I want to stop him. I want to guard him. But Tom Landry would say, if that guy comes and he, he runs right by you, you go the other way over there in the open space. These players were like, what? Wait a minute, I don't want to lose the game. You're making a mess of this whole thing. I've been playing football all my life. Guy covers me. I'm going to govern my own, get the ball. And he said, no, 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 no. And so the defenders would be, well, what if they throw that ball to him? They're like, now, Tom said, it won't happen. So they get in the game, and the guys are trusting him. whole thing seems like a big mess. So here comes the player. Shoots right in front of the linebacker, and the linebacker's like, ah, ah. He runs out there in the middle of nowhere out in the flats, and all of a sudden, the offense sends a running back out there. The quarterback throws it right to the defensive player, and he's in the right spot. Ah, touchdown. The, the thing was, the coach had a much bigger view of what was going on. He would take what seemed like chaos and a mess and work it for his greater purposes in a way that we could never see. And that's what God is doing. That's why Paul can say, remember my mess, Christ made it better. So that's the backdrop of today's text, which brings us to him saying in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another way of saying that would be, I've shown you how my messed up life is actually a success by the work of God. Now rest assured that yours can also follow suit. That's the angle he's taking here. 
briefly, it needs to be clarified when Paul says something as noble as let your wife, let your wife, wife and your life, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying you need to live up to the standards of Jesus in order to be deemed worthy. You need to be perfect, then you're worthy of the gospel. Not what he's saying. Only Jesus was perfect. Only Jesus came and fulfilled the law of God. Only Jesus could pay the sacrifice for our sins because it was God himself. He's not saying you have to be Jesus. That's not his view of success. He's actually using some terminology that elsewhere is used in regards to citizenship. It's political language. It doesn't come out in our text, but it's political language. It's as if he's saying, don't live as if you're a member of the Empire of Rome. See, the city of Philippi was uh, connected to the Roman Empire, so they took a lot of pride in the fact that though kind of removed, they were still considered Roman citizens. Paul was saying, don't live as if this is your only world here. Instead, live as if you're in the political kingdom of Christ because success is radically different. If you're living in the kingdom of Christ, then if you're living in Rome or Raleigh for that matter. What he's saying is, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the sense that you are working hard at what matters in our kingdom and you're allowing Christ to transform it. That's what Paul was doing. He was working hard and preaching the gospel and planted churches. That was his role in the kingdom. It blew up in his face. He's in prison. Peter was arrested. He's saying, this is what you need to be about and watch and know and trust and have faith that God can redeem it. So he's going to point out a couple of messes here. It's kind of like a good parent. If you're a parent here and you notice maybe your child struggles with being disrespectful to, um, to others or to other parents, he's just got disrespectful tone to him. I've heard of such things, never seen it in my own kids, but maybe you have. And so, you know, a good parent is not going to always say, stop, stop being disrespectful. Instead, they might say, let your love, let your words be flavored with love today or speak in a way that honors God. They're going to say this positively, but the kid and you both know what the real problem is. You're just speaking positively to the problem. This is what Paul does in the next verses. See, as we read this, if you can tell which mess he's trying to make up first. What's the problem that he's trying to address that if it's addressed, you can say you're being a successful Christian. You're living in the kingdom of Christ successfully. 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I'm here or whether I'm absent, be consistent. I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you see the first mess that he's addressing there subtly? He's addressing broken relationships. He's addressing some broken relationships. Now, a couple of comments, if you think about spiritual success as a Christian, that might not have been the one I would have started with, right? You think of other things, maybe, you know, your prayer life, right? Be a success as a Christian, pray all the time. That's important, but he didn't start there. Oh, or quiet time. You know, what kind of evangelical is he if he doesn't tout the quiet time at this moment, right? Isn't that what spiritual success is? Or even 
uh, a, a responsible career that suits your callings and gifts, or being a great parent. These are the things that I typically think of when I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have a successful day in God today. No, we have to let his emphasis stand where it is. It's not an all-inclusive list, but he begins by saying we have some messed up relationships. There's some disunity here in the body. And secondly, what's most striking here to me is how he goes over the top and emphasizing how in our church there can be disunity. You see in verse 27 how he's stacking like Lego blocks phrases about unity. He says standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, side by side. These phrases are supposed to catch your eye and say, oh, I've got a problem. I'm not standing in one spirit. I'm not at one mind with my brother and sister. I'm not side by side. I'm, I've got some distance here with the people of God in my church. Later on in 2.2, skip your eyes on down to chapter 2, verse 2. He reiterates this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. This is relational unity talk. Why? Because the church had some problems there. Later in chapter 4, he'll identify that there was some major disunity going on and he'll address it. But here, just more generally, he realizes that we all have messes relationally. And you might ask, why is it so important? This relational harmony, why is it so important that Paul put it at the top of the list when he's talking about living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Why did he front end that one? Well, there could be a couple of reasons here. One, in our unity as a church, what's at stake is nothing less than God's Trinitarian glory. What's at stake in our unity is nothing less than God's Trinitarian glory. Here's a hint about that. Look again in verse 27. In the ESV, you can see the phrase, in one spirit, right? In one spirit. Elsewhere where Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Ephesians 2, 18, there the phrase is translated in the one spirit of God, in the one spirit of God. So in a sense, here's what Paul is saying. Since you believers have been united by the Spirit of God, you're now being drawn in to this eternal relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, right? And if you are disunified, what that's going to reflect to one another and to the world is that God is disunified, right? You can see how that strips him of his glory. We may not think about it as much in our context, but all over the world, the Muslims are winning. They are the ones who are growing in their religion. And the number one stumbling block to many of the Muslims that I have met is the idea that Jesus the Son and God the Father are one. They will not have that. That's keeping them from Christ. Now, Paul says if we're going to celebrate, if we're going to clearly communicate to the world that our God is unified, and we have to be unified ourselves. All throughout the scriptures, from creation to redemption to consummation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in harmony. We studied the Trinity of the church not too long ago, so you might remember how they have different roles in the Godhead, but they have similar purposes 
and their essence is the same. They're getting along. They're delighting in one another. And that's what's at stake when we fail as a church to reflect that. It's almost like a wedding ring. If you're married here, you've probably got on a wedding ring. And in and of itself, it doesn't say that much. I mean, it, but if you think about what it represents, you know, it's, it's a circle. So it will represent love that doesn't die, keeps going. It's a precious metal, so it represents the purity of your love. It also means something that this bad boy doesn't come off, right? It is married to your finger because you are never to separate from your spouse. Have you ever been in a room when some hapless dude happened to lose his ring or something? I was in a room not too long ago, and the guy was playing with it, and he, he just took it off, and he walked out, and he came back into the room. I didn't even notice it, but the neck of every woman in the room was like, like, ooh. You ain't wearing your wedding ring. I was like, oh, poor guy. Why is that such an important? Why do we notice those things? Because this symbolizes something, right? If this is separated from the finger, that means that the wife and the husband are separated in a way that they should not be. The same is true of the church. If we are not united in our relationships, what we're screaming, what we're preaching, what we're broadcasting to the world is our God is not united. You can see how that strips him of his glory. Another reason why relational unity is so important here is that in pursuing unity, the gospel is actually revealed. The gospel can be clearly revealed. The good news of Jesus Christ coming to forgive sinners can be clearly revealed as we pursue unity. Think about what happens when there's an argument. You have an offended party. The person who made the offense can go to them. It gives us a chance to put on the Jesus robe, the Jesus costume, and play the Jesus role in the play. And we can say, I, for, I forgive you, right? You have sinned against me. I forgive you. All of that illustrates the grander redemptive story of God sending his son in part to be offended, to be messed up to be beat upon, to be wronged, so that the greatness of his forgiveness and all that that means can be shown off. And we have a chance to do that. If we walk around and we're not pursuing unity, we rob ourselves of those gospel moments where we cannot just talk about the gospel, but we can actually live it out and we can feel what it feels like to be forgiven in this world. And we can also feel the grace of forgiving one of our brothers and sisters. So the gospel is on display when unity is pursued. And you can see how Christ can actually make a success out of our mess. If you're disunified with someone, Christ can actually turn that into a successful situation where his love is triumphed. How can we strive for that practically? Well, Jesus spoke to this, didn't he, a couple of times. Matthew 5. Matthew 18 or two sections where we have Jesus speaking of uh, unity within the family. Especially Matthew 5 is startling because you remember what he says? Pursuing unity comes before. Remember what he was willing to, to interrupt with worship. And you think, oh, Jesus, nothing comes before worship. He, he's the one who's going to magnify the Father at all times. Jesus says, if, if you're up there and you're giving, like a setting like this, if you're giving your offering 
or maybe if you're singing a worship song or you're listening to the preaching, whatever you do to express worship, if you're doing that and you remember that you have hurt someone, what does he say? I just keep on worshiping. No, but stop that. It isn't me time where God says stop worshiping, but Jesus says stop that and go and worship in a different way. Worship by pursuing unity. Because this worship over here that you're just spinning in, I'm not buying it. If you're not willing to go to someone and say, hey, I wronged you. I gossiped against you. I blew it. I, <clears throat> the teeth came out in my anger. Will you forgive me? That's the gospel moment. Because God has forgiven me much in Christ. Yes, I will forgive you. Oh, I don't deserve it. No, you don't. But God is bigger. That's the gospel worship that Christ desires in Matthew 5. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus on Unity, episode 2, he starts talking about the same thing. This time it's different. This time he doesn't uh, speak to the people who have sinned others. Who does he speak to in Matthew 18? The victim, right? If you have been sinned against, now that's a different story. What's supposed to happen then? Pastor Sean and I were talking this week. It's the same answer. Go to that person and be reconciled so that the gospel shines. Go to that person and say, I know you've hurt me. I know you've bruised me. I can't stand that you did that to me. But I will forgive you because of what Jesus Christ has done in here. I've been forgiven much. So let's pursue reconciliation. He doesn't say that it's easy and he's not being trite. But he does prioritize it and make it a major way that you can have success. So think about this this week. If you want to achieve spiritual success, exalting Christ in a major way this week, pick someone you know that you tend to be disunified with and pursue them. Pursue them in love, with grace, with a note, with an email, with a text. Go in person. Say, look, this isn't right doesn't reflect the gospel or the trinity. It's just messed up. But how about we allow Christ to come in and make this a success? I want to have a special application here. We don't usually do this, but what I want to do, I really feel moved to pray for us in this. So I'm going to pray. I usually don't pray in the middle of sermons, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to now because this is so supernatural. I just don't want to be urging you to do something. I want to be calling out to God to come inside of us and work this grace of unity in the church. So let me just pray, and then um, we'll get back to the sermon. But I want to call out to God to help us in this matter of unity. I was reading a prayer online as a resource this week, and it touched me. I just want to pray. Let's pray. God, you're gracious, you're merciful, and the problems we face in our human family are grave. I just ask that you make us heartbroken, God, for our disunity. It's so easy to forget that your son Jesus is always the good news. And that he has given us the remedy for our brokenness. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He spoke that so clearly, God. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to remind us of this forgiveness of Christ again and again and again. And we ask you for the gift of hope in our lives, that we will, by your power, emerge from relational situations that in the short term, they seem hopeless. 
Banish our fear. Banish our anxieties from our heart. And God, today we pray. We pray to affirm one another and to remove the barriers that seem to sour our relationships, Father, and to keep us at a distance. I pray you heal our short tempers, our crabbiness, the grudges we hold against one another and against the church. God, prompt us to be beacons in the present darkness and especially beacons to one another. God, we are all guilty of some selfishness. We easily become angry and irrational and embrace our idol, the devastating relational cost. We need your help to stop contributing to the larger greed that tears at our world. We believe in the power of your grace to change our lives and we promise today to be once again open to that grace. Bless us, God. Bless us with a peaceful spirit and a desire to be reconciled with one another. And let us even today go to one another in humility to showcase the gospel of Christ. I pray this by your power to your glory. Amen. Amen. That's the first mess that Christ wants to turn into a success, our relational disunity. There's another one in the text that I want to point out. The second one will term our own passive missionality. Passive missionality. What do you mean by that? Our own lack of desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ. A passive missionality. Let's step beyond unity. Look at the end of verse 27. Because our unity has a specific end game. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul brings up in the next line. Think about it. Uh, Our lives are to be like the unveiling of a masterpiece in a museum. Picture a giant sculpture work of art. And it is too big for one person to unveil it. So everybody in the church needs to come around, grab two hands on the veil and lift it up. So that there's a massive unveiling of the beauty of this work of art. We need to be unified. But the unity has a purpose. It's unveiling Jesus so that we can go out and speak clearly the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's really scary in our culture because this cross-culture is counter-cultural to speak anything about the good news these days, right? You'll be branded a bigot. Somebody's going to misunderstand you. Say, hey, get out of my face. Try, stop trying to change me. Our media is not friendly to those of us who want to share our faith. This week was the premiere of a new TV show called The Jim Gaffigan Show. Famous comedian. You may have seen him. He's had specials on forever. Now he's doing a show. And it premiered this week. You know what the first episode was? The first episode was all about uh, a a scenario. What if the media actually found out that he identifies himself as a Christian? So the plot was he actually went to a church to pick up a Bible for his wife on his way to work. Well, the Bible he picked up turned out to be one of those big things that you pray over as a family, so it's like this big. So he has to go into work at the comedy club where everybody sees him carrying this giant Bible. Well, it gets out into the media, and he's attacked by everybody just for holding the Bible. You got John Stewart coming after him. Keith, Keith Oberman's coming after him. All of the lesbian gay lobby just kill him in the media, and the whole show is about uh, the stark reaction of everybody, the, the that's uh, almost the persecution he gets in the media for just not even sharing Jesus, but just for carrying a Bible. And they were making fun of, 
of what goes on in the media today in our society. And that's true. It can be very intimidating to come out and say to someone, hey, do you know that without Jesus, you have no ultimate hope? Or if you die without knowing this guy and confessing him as your king, you're going to perish forever. Or the guy I follow has been dead for three days and then he came back to life. All of those things can get a little awkward. You can get scared. You can think, how are people going to think about me intellectually or professionally if I actually share the good news? And that's what Paul addresses here. If you look in verse 28, he's saying a successful life, living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ as you're standing firm in one spirit and not frightened in any way by your opponents. That's how we know that their mess is being scared to death of the opponent that they have. A little different back then, but the reality is Christian mission has always been messy. Bible scholar Frank Tillman reminds us that in the early church, the authorities had already crucified Jesus. They had outlawed the preaching of the gospel. They'd executed James. They imprisoned both Peter and Paul. They confiscated personal Christian property. They demanded that Christians worship them, worship the authorities. And later, matters went from bad to even worse. Later in the Christian story, we see the official regime feeding Christians to the lions, burning them at the stake, and destroying the scriptures. It's always been messy to share the gospel, to live on mission for Christ. Now, these texts are always really hard for us to read because the reality is when we think about what might happen when we share the gospel, most of us don't fear being fed to the lions, right? We don't have that level of persecution here. So our tendency might be to read these texts and kind of skip over them, right? But I heard a sermon this week where someone recommended um, a couple of different reasons why we want to... uh, continue to read these suffering passages in earnest. The first reason was because of the vast spread and lightning speed of social media, suffering is now in our face in a way that it never was before. Like the 147 Christian uh, students who were massacred in Kenya recently, right? We can hear about that stuff and we can know that Christians are still suffering physically for the gospel. There's also the downward cultural trend in our society that leads many people to believe we will be experiencing physical suffering if not in our lifetime and the lifetime of our kids. So serious stuff. But you can read in verse 28 that Paul can actually say we can be encouraged by what is happening in the midst of persecution or in the midst of any any, any sense in which you're an outcast when you try to share the gospel? Look, he says here, 28, um, this, and he's talking about the scary gospel sharing. This is a clear sign to you if you're out there living in unity with your brothers and sisters and you're sharing your faith, this is a clear sign to you with respect to them of two things. One, their destruction. Two, of your salvation that comes from God. Who is they? People who reject Jesus. Don't you love it when you buy a book online 
And I did it this week. I bought a book online on my laptop, and I paid for it. And there's uh, not an e-book, but one that they're going to mail to me, right? And I bought it and hit it. And right when I did it, I heard this ding. And my phone's like, oh, I got an email. Look at my phone. <laughs> it's from the company that I just bought the book from. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. They've sent me a receipt, an invoice with the name of my book on it. I love that because it's going to be four days before I actually get my hands on the book, before I can read it. Or I can touch it. But until then, I have the receipt that ensures that it's coming. Paul talks that way about suffering or any type of trials that you might encounter while evangelizing. He says, in a weird way, that actually served as a sign, a token, a receipt that you're actually going to be saved. What's coming that hasn't arrived yet is the ultimate deliverance from the wrath of God, right? Eternity with Jesus, embracing him and his kingdom, all the world recreated. That hasn't come yet. But let, says Paul, let the persecution you receive from sharing serve as a receipt, as insurance, as a token that you will receive that. It's also a token, a receipt to people who reject it. His word there is harsh. If you reject the gospel today, your lot is destruction. Mark 9, Jesus calls this hell, an unquenchable fire, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. So he's dividing people up into two sections here. The people who are suffering for their faith and sharing it, the people who are mocking it, people who might think you're stupid, or you're not intellectual enough if you believe in God, or get out of my business type of people, whatever. He's saying those people, your suffering can be a sign, a receipt of where they are heading ultimately. Verse 29, he goes even farther and says, suffering is actually a gift. He said, it's been given to you, this receipt and the suffering has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should, two things, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is given by God to missional believers, and it results in an assurance of faith. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It's hard enough to say, oh, my faith comes from God? That's what this text says. Your actual belief, your faith is given to you from God. You didn't Bring it up from inside yourself. It's a gift. That's a whole other sermon. But on here he also says, your suffering is from God. How in the world can he say that? Well, there's lots of good reasons the Bible gives for suffering. But here he just mentions this one. It is to assure you that you're playing for the right team. Remember what happened to Jesus when he suffered, Right? He was actually born on the path of glory, but at the trailhead of the path was suffering. He was beaten. He was rejected. He was ultimately hung on the cross. All of this happened had to happen before his glory. Likewise, Paul was thrown in jail. That's why in verse 30, he can say, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and that you hear that I'm still having. By conflict, he means a mess, suffering. But he said, rest assured, your mess can be Christ's success. 
whatever he's going through in this persecution can be turned by God to glorify Christ. Like I said earlier, passages like this can be feel like they're a world away sometimes. Like watching Star Wars The Force Awakens. You watch that and you're like, it's a different world. This is kind of hard to get into maybe, or maybe not. But you can view these suffering passages and feel like, that's a different world. But I read just this week, some, many of you have heard, on May 12th, the uh, Washington Post ran the story, uh, Baron L. Stutzman. She's now semi-famous for owning a flower shop in Washington State. And she was successful for 30 years, successful entrepreneur running a flower shop, and she serviced many people in the, um, in the community, in, including her um, homosexual friend, her gay friend, Rob Ingersoll. She was buddies with him. She was friends with him. She loved picking out his designs because he had good taste. It was always exciting creating flower arrangements for him. And he liked her style so much that he said, why don't you provide the floral designs for my wedding? Well, it turns out this woman, this entrepreneur, Baronel, was a, a believer in Christ. And so she agonized about this. She prayed about it. And she went to him and said, we're good friends. I love you, but my relationship to Jesus keeps me from providing this to your wedding, these flowers to your wedding, because it, 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 it just makes me feel weird in my conscience because I don't believe in this. He says, I understand what she does is she refers him to three of her friends who were great with flowers and would love to do his wedding. They hug, and he leaves the, sto- the store. And she writes in the story, she says, imagine my amazement when shortly thereafter, the Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson sued me for, ex- for not providing his wedding flowers because I believe in Jesus. And later, I was also sued by the ACLU. All because I said, I love you, I'm your friend, but I don't want to provide flowers because of Jesus. This stuff still happens, and it can happen more and more. It's just an enormous mess. But my encouragement to you today is any mess that you encounter in sharing your faith, any pushback from your family, any rejection from your neighbors, as with Jesus, suffering lies at the trailhead of glory. It can lead to your eternal security in Christ. Let's put this to work. I mean, what would happen? Most of us, frankly, don't regularly share with our neighbors or our family members or our co-workers because it's scary. We, we think, what are they going to think about me? Might ruin the relationship, right? They might think of me less. Um, it can be really scary, but Paul says, and God whispers into your ear this morning, don't be afraid of those who oppose you. Don't be afraid of those who oppose you. Even the worst thing that could happen Even in there, Christ will be glorified because you're speaking glorious things about Him, right? And that speaking and that rejection dynamic would actually serve to ensure your faith of His coming victory. What do you mean? How how can that work? How can it actually be insurance to suffer? Well, here's how it might go. Let's say I went out in my neighborhood and I shared Jesus with my neighbor and he's like, Williams, that's enough. I've had it with your proselytizing. You're a bigot because I'm not your religion. You're talking bad things. You're asking me to change using this repentance talk. Your kids will not play with my kids. 
And in our homeowner association, we've got something written about proselytizing or selling. That's what you're doing. I'm going to them, and you're getting kicked out. And by the way, don't ever talk to me again. So I walk away from that encounter. I was like, wow, I was just at the pool making conversation. And so I'm walking home, and I'm thinking, okay, how can this be any type of insurance of my salvation? Well, here it is. It served as proof that you're not a big phony. Think about it. Why else would you put yourself through that isolation, relational trauma and drama? Why would you do that unless you truly belong to the kingdom of God? A lot of things you can do and fake it in the Christian life. But sharing in such a way that puts your neck out there to be chopped off in a relationship, that shows where your true heart lies. It's as if you got skin in a game, God gives you a, glimp, a glimpse of the final score. That hurt and that pain is, is meant to help you identify with Paul, with Jesus, and say, hey, yeah, this is, this is for real. I am one day headed for salvation. It's not yet. Right now I have to go through this stuff. But in the end, I will prevail in victory. And Paul doesn't go there. We can broaden this as we finish up. He doesn't talk about all of our life messes, right? could have talked about our parenting mess. could have talked about our financial mess, our addictive messes. My hope today is that you will see that Christ can make a success out of any mess in our lives. Where we see this the most is at the cross of Jesus. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And when we do that, we celebrate what Jesus has done. Think about the mess of Jesus' life. Man, he'd been arrested. He came to save these people. They gave him the stiff arm. Put him in chains. Beat him. Put thorns on his head. That's a mess. But it's also a success. He achieved the redemption of all God's people. He adopted People through his cross work, by his cross work, the spirit is set free to come and tug at people's hearts and yank them into God's kingdom. All that happens at the cross. And at the cross, we also see ultimately our mess. At the cross, we come and we say, I can't do this. I can't live according to your requirements, God. I can't give you the glory. I keep giving myself the glory. I can't find ultimate joy in, in you. I, kept, I keep, I keep uh, going off course here. Finding my joy in all these lesser things. That's what the man says at the cross so that God can say, I will come inside of you and I will change you. I will forgive you. I will transform you. I will pull you from darkness to light. I will make your mess a success. That's what we see at the cross. And that's what we're going to celebrate here. If you're a guest, we would love, if you're a follower of Jesus, to invite you to take the Lord's Supper in a moment, I'll pray, and the musicians will play. And that's your sign to begin to think about the cross in your life. Begin to think about your relational disunity, your missional passivity, and ask God to transform it, to make a success where you have made a mess. And then when you're ready, go to the table. We have tables at the front, tables at the back. Bring it back to your seat. Take the supper together.
If you're a guest here and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're just here visiting, we ask that you just watch us. This is a family meal for believers only. And we're going to take it now after I pray and celebrate the greatness of God in Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for what you have done in Jesus. We take now the bread. And when we take the bread, we say our righteousness is not enough. Our righteousness is messed up. We need to take something inside of us that is foreign. And that, oh Lord, is you by your spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. And God, when we take the cup, we say to you and to all who may be looking, our sacrifice could never be enough. Any blood that we spill working to attain glorification and sanctification would never work. We need the precious blood of Jesus inside of us so we drink it and know that we are connected to his death and his resurrection that can bring hope where there is hopelessness. So God, I pray these things. Come and move as we take the Lord's Supper together. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.